Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can follow us on Facebook or visit our website at BeatitudesChurch.org. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society. I've missed you, Church of the Beatitudes. This has been an exciting summer. A lot has happened in my world, and I imagine a lot has happened in your world. So what a wonderful way to delve back into uh, being alongside of you this morning with this particular uh, series of passages. Today's passage centers on the questions of how violence and evil of the world are serving God's purposes. I also question how is it that these things still exist? I imagine that that's a question a lot of us think about throughout our lives, and I think it's the central question that the prophet brings forth in this week's readings. The book of Habakkuk attempts to find harmony between justice and injustice, between confidence and doubt, salvation and judgment, and even God in humankind. And it's actually the first answer that the prophet gets in return that sets the stage for something biblical readers up to this point haven't read. That's humans confronting God in such an audacious manner. That first answer that Habakkuk gets back to their question is actually probably conditioned by their theology of the time. That theology or that idea that Yahweh uses the giant empires around them to punish them for failing to honor their covenant with Yahweh. But Habakkuk in particular rejects this type of theology, for they appear to believe at that ill-befitting God of all ages is not that God, for such a God would never sanction a response in more violence. Habakkuk basically says, nope, not good enough, God. And this is the prophet Habakkuk's initial response when God answers the, pri- the prophet's urgent cry with, you know, just slow down, just wait. We're going to send the Chaldeans to take care of it. And Habakkuk knew what this meant. Habakkuk decided that they will not accept that the answer to violence within Israel is more violence from the outside. And Habakkuk shouldn't have accepted that any more than we should accept that same type of behavior. For instance, this week, reading about the sexual assault on women and trans communities, and how when that is reported to the police, that it often results in more trauma for the victim. And that trauma takes shape in prisons and jails. Nope, not good enough. Not good enough, God, if you are the God of the everlasting. At the beginning of chapter two, Habakkuk poses that audacious complaint again. And I wonder, is God's answer sufficient? God does respond back with, well, there's still a vision for that appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. 
for it will surely come and not delay. I mentioned just briefly a few minutes ago that the book of Habakkuk, unlike most prophet books, confronts God rather than presenting the deity confronting the people. And the audacity of Habakkuk's dialogue with God prompts womanist theologian Willa Gaffney to call them womanish. That means that Habakkuk's behavior is outrageous, audacious, and displays some willful actions. In fact, it is Habakkuk who is someone who is wanting to know more and in greater depth what is considered good for the people and not just the individual. Other than that, we know virtually nothing about this prophet other than we can tell that they were outraged at the suffering that they witnessed and they were willing to go toe-to-toe with God to demand something different. The prophet's outraged interrogation of how long echoes down through our millennia, bursting out today from spaces like Palestine and Ukraine and the Philippines and Uganda and Sri Lanka and Honduras and Mexico and Flint and Detroit and Jackson and Florida and New Orleans and on and on. If you were to take Lucy's invitation, which is to read this short book, you'll see at the end of it that Habakkuk is literally singing God's praises. But it happened so quick. What was it that changed Habakkuk's position? And should we accept that as sufficient enough for us to keep reading? I actually surmise what changes for Habakkuk is the intimacy that came from that generative conflict with God. It does seem in the scriptures that God not only welcomes the prophet's critical feedback, but in the end affirms their perception that there is indeed something wrong, that the spirit of the proud is not right within them. But we know that Habakkuk is not done questioning God. In fact, they insist on another answer. And then they wait, and they listen again. And this time, though, in order to hear a more fitting answer, Habakkuk goes high up on the tallest part of the watchtower. I wonder, what can the prophet see from up there that helps to make God's answer more plain? Does Habakkuk do this in order to get a broader view of God's vision of justice? For what is it that they can see from up so high? Perhaps Habakkuk's perspective from on high is the ability for them to see better the relationships between people as opposed to the relationship with just oneself. I wonder what it could look like and what we could change and understand if we took that same approach. If we recognize that we're going to have to work together as believers from across the world to imagine what justice for the whole globe might look like. And in our waiting for answers, what can we learn from observing how animals and plants and fungi address harm? How they repair broken relationships to live justly and with and alongside one another? Or what can we see if we respectfully learn about indigenous processes for addressing harm in the community and for resolving disputes? What if as a church community, we localized our justice to our own communities, the people that you know, the people that you live by and with 
everyone close to you, how we can develop a certain degree of accountability along with a desire for dignity to and for each other. What broader vantage point would we need in order to understand and to join in with the vision of God, that vision that God is trying to make accessible to each and every one of us? And what will it take for us to finally know that we are going to need to work across these imaginary borders to find healing that honors all the dignity of all of the lives of all of the living creatures everywhere? For we are part of long lineages, of blood, of land, of choices and traditions, and we know that God's perspective sometimes has to take that long view. As Rabbi Tarfin says in the Talmud, it is not your responsibility to finish the work of perfecting the world, but neither are you free to desist from it. And in her book, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Can Be Made Right, Lisa Sharon Harper explains that when God looked at creation and declared it very good, that God was focused on our relationships more than just the individual. God's attention is on our interdependence and the ways we serve and are being served by one another, by and with and for all of creation. And if we were to look at the spaces between us, what contemporary culture would call that negative space, if we were to look at that differently rather than focusing on separate people, imagine what justice could look like. How do we get that shift to happen? How do we make change possible? Theologian and liturgist co-author Riley states, you might think that justice is a form of choosing sides, choosing whom to stand behind. And in a way it is. But justice doesn't choose whose dignity is superior. It upholds the dignity of all those involved, no matter whom it offends or what it costs. For we are all made of beauty. In justice, everyone bears the image of the divine. In today's terms, we might say that Habakkuk is not okay, and in their outcry, we can find resonance and reassurance that sometimes it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be furious with God, even to doubt God's power and goodness. It's okay to cry out. And like Habakkuk, we cry out, how long? How long, O oh Lord? And when we dispute the answers that we get back, that too is okay. And perhaps this short book is a reminder that there is indeed a vision, even if it's not spelled out clearly in the message. Maybe God has reminded the prophet and now us of what we already know so deep inside of us is that vision, that vision that comes from our ancestors, that is embedded into our DNA We'll talk about that now. The accompanying scriptures in the liturgical calendar this week is Luke 17, 5 through 10. And both sets of readings build on the complexity of the text and a message that appears to contradict itself in every sentence. In the Luke verses, Jesus' disciples ask for their faith to be increased. 
And Jesus appears to be really impatient with his reply. What was his reply, I wonder? No. Simply no. And maybe the only way to answer the question of why Jesus says no or why God doesn't give Habakkuk the answers that they want is to unpack what we mean by the term faith. What exactly are we asking for when we ask God to give us more faith or to better understand the evil and the hurt in our world? When preparing for this week's sermon, I took a hard look at my assumptions about my faith, about how God's slow response to Habakkuk and later Jesus' no could actually begin to make a little bit more sense. I started to realize what if faith isn't quantifiable? What if faith isn't on my terms and my timetable? And what if more faith isn't better faith and that my demand for justice now isn't now? What if faith and justice are actually not even the nouns that we choose to use them in? What if instead justice and faith is engagement and orientation and indeed action? What if justice and faith is something that we do and not something that we have or possess? How can we turn ourselves towards a Jesus to trust not only in him, but in the path and the timeline of that path as well? How do we wait for the answers of faith and justice, even in the difficult, the painful, and the potentially risky circumstances? So that way we can lean into God's goodness, God's healing, and God's mercy. Beloved community, I believe the invitation in this week's lectionary readings is for us to go forth and live in light of what we already see, we already sense, hear, and know. To uphold the dignity of all those involved, no matter whom it offends or what it costs. For we are all made for beauty. And in justice, everyone bears the image of the divine. In other words, the invitation community this week is to do faith, to do justice, to do the loving and the forgiving thing that sometimes we consider so wasteful or not important, so we just ignore it. Justice and faith aren't fireworks. It's not meant to dazzle us and to awe us. Both are simply recognizing our tiny place in relation to God's enormous creative love and then filling that place with our whole selves, our whole lives. In this sense, justice and faith is simply showing up when we're expected to show up. My mother passed away at the beginning of August, and as somebody who's gone through a lot of pastoral care training, I didn't know what it meant to care for myself. And my friends just showed up. To me, that's what faith and justice looks like, to just show up. Both faith and justice are motivated by duty and sustained by love. And I know that sometimes one of the most damaging messages in church communities for people who are struggling with their spiritual lives 
is to somehow believe that faith is antithetical to doubt, to fear, to ambivalence, or even confusion, and that when it comes to our faith, our problem in churches is scarcity. This response to that is very cruel. It is not what faith in justice and love looks like. For having faith, even having enough faith, does not mean that we will never struggle with unbelief, distrust, or anxiety. Having faith actually means leaning hard into God's abundance. Having faith means pursuing God and even the things of God when the pursuit feels painful or pointless. Faith is not deciding once and, all to follow, once and for all to follow Jesus. It is actually trusting Jesus one step at a time, day after day after day, for the long journey ahead. That goes for justice as well. If I'm honest, I must admit that when I've asked God to answer my cries for justice or for God to help me be more faithful, what I'm really asking for is life to be easy, life to be smooth, life to be uncomplicated. And so the Lord's unsatisfactory answers to myself and for Habakkuk, and then Jesus' response to his disciple, however, suggests that really, Faith and justice require rigor, and perhaps more so, patience, that both do indeed grow stronger when it's exercised and weaken when it's idle. Even when we witness Habakkuk's repeated complaints and questions, we ultimately find that their answers are in the affirmation of God. You, God, the Lord, you are my strength. Beloved community, from our understanding of history, our interactions with our sacred text, our ability to sit, wait, and then listen to our fellow beings, we know the things that make for human flourishing. There is not a doubt. We know that in order to thrive that we must do faith, do justice, for both will increase. Do faith and act justly, beloved community, and wait to see what happens. Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can help us to continue this program by making your donations at beatitudeschurch.org backslash online dash giving Beatitudes Radio empowering people to enrich society